I'm Josh Cooperman, host and publisher of Confo by Design. This is another episode of Legendary Conversations, featuring stories, events, and intimate chats with legends of design. I'm bringing you conversations and keynotes from the magnificent showrooms of the La Cienega Design Quarter. This one is exciting, and I I loved that I got to hear it, and now I get to replay it, which is also just so much fun for me. It was hosted by Hammer and Spear. It featured moderator Tony Freund, editorial director at First Dibs, and showcased designers Jamie Bush, Nate Berkus, and Vera Grenny. Jamie, Tony, Nate, and Vera talk about collectible treasures, their place in design, and how luxury collectibles or entire collections can enhance the overall design. It's a big topic, and and these guys, they were up for it, and I can't wait for you to hear it. This is Why It's Worth It from the Hammer and Spear showroom during Legends 2019. When you're dealing with a home of treasures, perhaps a collection with a very strong viewpoint or aesthetic, how do you harmonize those pieces, you know, with the overall decor? And I'll start with you here. Yeah, put you on the spot. It can be a difficult one, actually, <coughs> Tony. I was just looking at this question and thinking, um, I've just done, I think the best way of answering it is by giving an example of doing a project where suddenly you're halfway through the project and it's a very big, expensive project and the client always tells you they have great works of art. And then suddenly halfway through the project, he shows you the most important work of art, which is a four meter long Richter picture full of <laughs> primary colors, like bright orange, pink, <laughs> yellow, green, every color. And you're doing this wonderful neutral serene palette. And mm -hmm. you think, how the hell do you possibly allow something of that size, scale, and, and attitude really mm -hmm. to deliver it? So you then have to work it out. Right. And I worked it out by putting a few accents of bright colors to because harmony is the word, I think, which we'll probably all talk about, mm -hmm. you know, to if you're dealing with great things, mm -hmm. harmony is the thing mm -hmm. that often you want to create so they don't stand out too much. And yet you want to give them, you want to put them up. You on want to put them in the front, but yeah. then there's a limit too. Like if a woman wears beautiful jewelry, it shouldn't actually take over everything else. Right. You want to try and keep something back, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. You know, that's what I feel. <laughs> You're okay. <laughs> uh, do you have something to add about harmonizing with something that's very, very strong, a piece of art that really dominates? I, I mean, I think that in any interior, I agree entirely with what, what your perspective is. I, I think in any interior, it's really important that um, that nothing stands out too much. I think that it's a really finely honed skill, one that I'm still working on, to be perfectly frank. Um, I'm currently working with probably one of the most important collections of paintings and photography um, and sculpture here in Los Angeles, and I'm challenged by it. Um, the, the, the collector and homeowner has a very strong opinion, obviously, about how he wants to see the things that he's spent the greater part of 35 years amassing. I use that word intentionally. I'm like, <laughs> how much money is all of that? Um, like, terrifying. But, um, but I think that there's, there's when I look um, at, at a beautifully sort of layered and turned out space, you don't really notice that, that, you know, it's, it's sort of that old adage of like, oh, someone got a Picasso, it went over the fireplace. Mm -hmm. 
or does it go over the fireplace or does it go in the powder room? So, you know, it's, it's always interesting to see sort of the priorities of the homeowner and where these really super fine things land. Mm -hmm. If it's the first Picasso, it's always over the fireplace. That I've seen. So you have to make sure there's a fireplace. You have to build a fireplace. <laughs> no. Yeah. Typically, when there is that level of painting yeah. or picture, there is also it, it, it inherently a fire firebox. Right. Yeah. Well, there's also the old joke: Do you upholster uh, the couch to you know match the Picasso? And probably not. Or maybe oh, yes. You do. Oh, you definitely yes, you do. do. Okay. <laughs> do you do you upholster the couch to match the Picasso, Jamie? Um, I wish <laughs> one day when. I can say I don't care. You know, where you could just do, no. But the, it, it's interesting, because I think there's probably a reason, a very fortunate reason, that um, somebody calls each one of us, because they see something in each and every work that I think inherently responds to them. So if they have a collection of paintings, and there's a reason why they called you. You know what I mean? Where well, actually, with this project that I'm working on, there was no reason that they called me. I was like, wow, I've never worked with that caliber but of paintings or pictures yeah, before no. in my life. It, but it's, it's not the cost. It's the sensibility. They see something in you that they want to bring to that collection. And in an opposite, in a, in, a, uh, in a client base. And I think, and I bring that up because I think we're all fortunate enough to work with some amazing things. Like... Like, I'm shocked sometimes. I'm like, are you sure you want to trust me with any of this? Like, it's just, you know, because, like, I don't know, you could screw it up. And then, <laughs> but there's a sensibility about that. And, and, but I think that, I think that's such a big challenge for you to, like, incorporate something like that. And it doesn't always work. And then hopefully they are patient and you could try things. But uh, I, I'm, uh, I, what, what I've been looking at now that I have some different clients that, have completely different tastes. Some things that you're like, huh, you know, what am I going to do with that? But I think it's a challenge where we have one job that we're buying crazy stuff for, like, uh, where like I get to shop for like an enormous Alex Katz painting, mm. you know. And but I realize like what that it's vibrant and sort of in your face and really almost fluorescent in sensibility. And there's other things like that 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 are in this collection that we're like. That are that are saturated colors, but as a response, um, they're allowing me to like play with it abstractly. Where like that huge pink Alex Katz painting isn't in a dining room; that's all chartreuse. So like, it, but it's luxe and it's Italian modernism, and and um, but then opposing, we're making the entire living room a, a neutral, but the neutral's pink. So everything in the room is pink, and then there's pops of like saturated blood red, and then like some uh, turquoise, and the floors are all terrazzo. Like it, but but they're allowing me to like use that art, hopefully not a not a decorative way, but a structural way. Right. Uh, anyway, but the um, and it might not work. <laughs> like that's the weird thing. Like it's <laughs> it might. Well, I sincerely hope it does. Actually, no, it I'm sure it will. But you know what I mean? Like, you, if you try things and you're like, I hope it's going to 
come together, but I don't know. But I think, Gaby, the point that you're making, and I think Nate made it, which I think is really important, is that you, if you're lucky enough to deal with great works of art, which we're just expressing, is it should never be too reverential. And if, in fact, you were, you were building a museum, they would ask a scholar to hang all the works of art, because it's done in a scholarly way. But when we come along, I mean, color comes into it, the shape, the proportion, the style. And that's the great privilege. You mm -hmm. treat it differently. I love, in a high room, stacking paintings. Now, that's not reverential. I mean, if you suddenly have some great works of art, and a house I've just done, they had um, four wonderful early 1913 Picassos, which were very early owed by Gertrude Stein. Well, I stacked them up the wall, I mean, which is a bit in a way, non-reverential, but it looked extraordinary. Well, you can't do that in a museum. No. And, and what, a, what, a, what a gesture. Mm. You, the fact that you're like just treating it as an abstract You treat them line. as, well, they could be ours in our own home, but they could be prints of anything. Yeah. But right. these are the real thing, and that's what I like to do. That's, and I think yeah, that's, that's what you're saying, or we're all saying, I think. But I think it takes a lot of confidence, and you have the collective experience and have worked with that client for many, many years to feel comfortable even suggesting that? Well, I think, Nate, what you've just said, too, about suddenly this person rings you and you're putting this great collection all over the walls and you say, well, that's very kind of you, brilliant, but it's not really what I'm used to. That's why they want to use you, right. because you treat it no, that, that's in fair. a more natural way. And if you've got children and you're living in a lovely big room with exquisite things, there is nothing worse when it's um, feels like a museum. In 2019, that's just not the way we live. Right. Anyone. I just want to focus yeah. on tabletop and smalls. <laughs> really, really great about an end table. I can kill a coffee table. The finer, the better. Bring me the best stuff you possibly have. Okay. A mystery clock, no problem. Fork it over. But the, the four meter long... Uh, Rauschenberg or yeah. Richter, no, yeah. like I, I, I can figure it out, but I would be. Well, you wouldn't want the Richter, in my opinion. But no, it, I might not. Museum, it sounds like I don't. Want pretty, it. Well, it looked pretty good because it, you know I'm, I'm so proud that we made it work. Yeah. And but it was um, took a huge amount of sort of thinking. How the hell do I get out of this hole that I've yeah. just dug for myself? But well, it looks to, great. I have to say, I'm surprised that you didn't know about its existence before you started. Well, the in project. fact, to be or honest, he bought he bought it, but oh. he just neglected to tell us. Uh -huh. You know, so um, <laughs> and he'd never seen it. He'd only bought it in uh -huh. auction, which happens. We can't imagine if people spend very large amounts of money on great works of art, they haven't actually seen it. Mm -hmm. yeah. But he saw it, stored yeah. it, and then was bringing it out for this particular room. So anyway, yeah. it's successful. Yeah. We, I have asked for an inventory, um, you know, uh, just speaking about that for a moment. I mean, everyone that a, a true collector also has a, a fairly decent insurance policy and with that policy comes a document that is required by the company with the appraisal and with the catalog of everything in the collection, which has, you know, been weird for me to like sort of flip through a document that's just imagery and sizes um, with the value blacked out. And then I was like, yeah, I know, I was like, whoa. Um, and then some of the artists actually also bar. like, right, exactly. It was like, how many zeros do you think make a black bar this long? I'm gonna go with high eight figure, nine figure. Um, are there decimal? What's a Dewey decimal system? But, um, but, it, but it's been really interesting to sort of go through that. And then, of course, what factors in as well, and I'm sure you both have, have experienced this too, 
um, there's a lot of emotion attached to these collections, or one would hope that there's always a lot of emotion attached to these collections. Sometimes there's none at all, and it's an investment, and there's a super dynamic, charming art dealer involved on some level. But if the person's collecting on, on, on behalf of themselves or their family, oftentimes I think there's, a, there's some passion around things. There's a story behind where they found this and who they bought it from and who they outbid or who, who, who called them before it even landed at Phillips or Sotheby's or Christie's or wherever. And I think that there's a, um, th that's the part where that actually makes me even a little bit more nervous than figuring out what Pierre Frey fabric might take out something, you know, pull out what, I, what I'm seeing. It's that I don't want to insult them by saying I really just don't love that in this space when there's so much to choose from and they say well that was you know given to me by my wife on our wedding day mm -hmm. and then you just put on a blonde wig and get the hell out of town <laughs> but I, I think they th that's such an interesting point because one of the downfalls of maybe the world we live in at the moment is that art if we're talking about art which we have done for the last few minutes is now a commodity to a lot of people mm -hmm. so it's border you know it's the investment which is they claim is guaranteed to in increase their investment. So if, in fact, even if you have to face that fact, mm -hmm. what we're all trying to illustrate is, well, what I'm trying to say is that I want to try to not make it look like that. Right. I want to try, and that's why, in fact, if you get an inventory, as Nate said, and it's happened to me, I almost, I don't disregard it, but it's only when you see all the paintings. And mm -hmm. I always, whenever we're doing a project, have all the paintings in one room. And I spend a lot of time in that room with the client or with myself, and you often find, except for the Richter, you often find some things go in different places. And it's a much nicer problem when you're looking at them. Don't see the figures beside them, how much they're worth, right. but just looking at them for their beauty or their form or their color or something else. And surprising, and this particular house with the Richter, he also has um, um, unbelievable um, old masters. So you're suddenly, yeah, nice. you know, on one foot, you're um, installing this and you've got old masters and then you have great David Hockney's and it's you know when it's very eclectic and often that comes with people I mean not in his case but who treat art as a commodity our job is to try and harmonize it and you know put it all together well it's true you raise a point that you know with the boom in the art market people have stopped looking at art they see it as a commodity or they you know they go to a museum see a Picasso and they think of how many millions of dollars mm -hmm. it's worth and they've stopped just sort of seeing it uh, for its well, you can do it, Tony, so easily. You, if you're in someone's house and you see something extraordinary, bring out your phone mm -hmm. and you can look it up in two minutes right. exactly how much it went yeah, for right. at Sotheby's yeah. last year. Right. And, you know, yeah. you, you know, you can do the math pretty quickly now. Did anyone so. see the, the documentary, The Price of Everything, just out of curiosity? It was it just our conversation's taking a turn that reminds yeah. me of that. I thought it was so interesting and, and, and exactly what you just said, that the point of the, yeah. the entire film is that. It's that, in, and, and what whether it is a bubble, whether it isn't a bubble, um, so. And, and just adding to that point, it's so lovely if you do have a wonderful painting to hang and you put something next to it that's really worth nothing and unheard of, right. but very beautiful. That's really exciting. Right. Yeah. You know, if it's by an unknown artist, that's what I really love more than anything. Uh, but I, uh, to that point, again, I, I feel like if you take that to heart throughout the, the collection of somebody where the it's a mix you don't know what things cost whether it's a found object that's mm -hmm. a beautiful 
form or something yeah. that's worth nothing might have a place of honor and something more expensive doesn't. But that's so much chicer to live that way. Yeah, that's so much that. more elegant. Well, like, you yeah. know, that, you know, not like, it's like where you're wearing a logo or you're wearing something that is yeah. just beautifully made by hand. I mean, there's, a, there's such a difference in, in, that's a decision. Yeah. I have this crazy story as a side, and I think with all of us, everybody has different experiences, what they pull from, and I, as I get older, I realize I had a very rich background that informed me with the highs and lows, where like seriously, half my family were, were farmers, and then I had this other side that were like artists and designers and photographers, and, and I had this crazy aunt who was a shoe designer, she, this like unbelievable she has 200 pairs of shoes in the met permanent collection the, she like did everybody's shoes in the day and and is this icon in that era but but she ended up falling on hard times her husband was a uh they bet on horses they lived a fabulous over the top life and she they she realized they had no money he squandered anything anyway a long story short they had this super chic apartment in the city and she started, like, uh, she had no money, and so she started going to, like, these chicken houses and boiling gizzards and things like that because they came from Russia. But she had a Van Gogh in the corner of the living room. <laughs> and nobody really knew it. There was a Van Gogh in the corner of the living room. And then we realized, oh, fuck, like, just sell the painting. She was like, she was, she was like, Oma's going to starve to death. But she forgot that they had, and they had a collection of paintings. She forgot. She forgot. No, well, they knew brilliant. that it was there, but she would never even thought about, like, selling something. Right, it wasn't a commodity. No, she was going to just eat, like, canned tuna for the rest of her life. Hopefully, <laughs> your memory's much better than hers, I hope. No, it was crazy, but, but I, when you learn from that, you're like, it's so fantastic to treat, the, treat things that are precious and non-precious, you know, like in your life. And um, I don't know, that, that was always struck with me, where like the, the craziness where like it was a memory, but it wasn't uh, a commodity. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it's a more personal thing. I want to, uh, you, when you were talking before about great art, and I wanted to just flip this for a second. Have you, uh, well, I want to talk about, does the taste, does the art taste necessarily um, reflect their taste in design? I've seen beautiful apartments published or houses published, and the art is really atrocious. So I always think, well, what's the disconnect? They, they knew enough to hire, you know, Veer to do the house. I'm not saying this was one of your projects. Why, why didn't they know enough to not put that sailboat over, you know, in the <laughs> corner? Um, so have you, what's the, the, the inverse challenge of designing a beautiful space around a really bad art collection? Have you ever? Well, Nate, do you want to go first? No. <laughs> I, think, I think all I'll say to that is that I think a really bad art collection is one in, in England, there's certain people now that maybe they always have to have the tick points. We have to have a Damien Hirst painting. We have to have a Anush Kapoor, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And when you come to a house where people have the obvious, mm -hmm. what I've, I've just done it once, and the client, very nice people, but everything was so obvious. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reasons why it's lovely being an interior designer or doing what we all do is we don't want to make it obvious. You can do styling and do make it obvious. Mm -hmm. And so what I did in that case is I made them buy very unusual furniture, mm -hmm. which actually therefore canceled one out to make the whole thing mm -hmm. rather good, you know. So <laughs> I, I, it was a, a very tr um, 
interesting house in, in England. It was built by Lutchen, so it was a very famous house. So I then put, put mid-century French, very good furniture with it. Mm -hmm. And they loved it because the furniture cost so much, they thought it must be good, and it is good. <laughs> and it's now worth an awful lot more. But um, that actually cancelled one out to the other, Tony, and that's, that's how I did oh, it. And when you say it's unusual, it's unusual because that you, that, that's furniture you wouldn't necessarily find. Well, or you can't find house. it. You see, Pretty if you want to go out tomorrow mm -hmm. and get a Nushka or you want to buy a Damien Hirst painting, it. so rare. it's so easy to find one. I mean, they're all there, they're no. like a production line. They cost a lot of money, they're very nice, but mm -hmm. they've become production line pieces, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Right. So I think to try and find unique pieces, historical pieces, to sit with them, yeah. gave them a quality which they perhaps normally wouldn't have imbued or, or couldn't sit on their own. That's a nice sort of turning point. We've talked a lot about art. Let's talk about fine furniture and great since, um, since we're on a uh, street filled with you know, beautiful treasures. Um, so talk about that, working with incredible antiques or mid-century modern you know, rarities and build, building uh, rooms around those. So I, I came into the, my career in interior design. I have no formal education in design. I have a French and sociology degree from Lake Forest College in Chicago. Um, they didn't have a design program, and I knew I loved decoration. So my, entra my entree into this world was through an auction house. And I was able working to see, at working house. at an auction house, mm -hmm. and I was able to see, I sort of became a generalist, meaning I was pretending to know very little about a lot and very successful at it, except for rugs. I still can't figure out anything with rugs. Um, but, um, you know, one thing about the auction business is that you see people's collections from the opposite end of the road. Yeah. Um, you know, the auction industry is fueled by, they say, the three Ds, death, divorce, and debt. And so we would receive these estates coming in from, from all over, really. And you'd see what people collected. And sometimes you wanted to put a bullet in your brain because it was 6,500 boxes of Toby jugs or dolls or whatever, um, or Staffordshire figurines. Yeah, doll collections. And they, you have to sell them. Because if you want to sell the Richter, you have to sell the dolls. First, hopefully. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was interesting. So. You know, and I also then became really aware of like the patterns of you know whether uh, you know a George three chest of drawers in Chicago, twenty years ago was was two hundred dollars mm -hmm. at auction. I mean, it, it was unbelievable. Like brown furniture had no value at the time, and then I would go to later go to Paris and go to the flea markets and talk to the older dealers who had been there for two or three generations selling these beautiful bronze doré light fixtures with rock, hand-carved rock crystal um, um, trim, and, and, and they had been sitting there you know, letting everything get dusty mm -hmm. for the last 20 years while everyone was trying to buy industrial French furniture that was designed for a factory, and they were just sort of scratching their head and having their sandwiches, and sort of like, <laughs> no, it's going to turn around at some point. Mm -hmm. But... Um, I think it is turning around. It is turning around. 100% it is turning around. Um, but, but I think what's interesting about really fine furniture is it's just such a joy to work with. It's just such a joy to handle. It's just such a joy to assemble that in a space. Because that I find much easier to work with than somebody's either investment painting or deeply personal painting. Um, 
it's it I I've reached for things since the very beginning and always sort of stretched to the point where if the client doesn't have an understanding of why a French mid-century sofa should be that price or whatever um, it's our job to teach them and to show them and to walk them through and you know, most of our clients today are also on first tips. So by the time we arrive with everything to show them, they're like, well, that actually sold right here. You see, this one shipped from that Jean-Michel Franck that did, we just, we read about it. We read the bio about it. But so why is this one that price? And, you know, it, it, everyone's education, I think, has lifted a l largely in part to how beautiful your site is, truthfully, because I think people use it as a reference. I know I do all the time. Um, Especially when I'm selling stuff and I'm really curious to know what I can get for it. That's the best. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. i almost positive I saw the same sconces. I did. Aha! That's what those are. But, um, but working with fine furniture, I think, has been amazing. And again, it's, it's, the, it's the opportunity to... That is also a collection. That is also 100% a collection. It is, a, it is, it is for me... Um, what I know, what I'm much more comfortable with, what I'm able to speak about and feel um, uh, as if I know what I'm talking about mm -hmm. and I can justify as a designer why things have, the, have a certain value. Um, and it's super, super fun yeah. because you can mix it with things that um, aren't of the same quality and you're expected to mm -hmm. and everything just takes on a different life, um, you know, I almost instantly. So in 18th century, fine French furniture, you can mix it with uh, a contemporary piece. Yes, but I think, you know, I was thinking when Nate was talking just then, once upon a time, if people collected great things, like Jane Reitzman, who died the other day at 99 and 100 almost, um, if you look at her apartment in, in New York, which was full of the greatest museum-quality French furniture mm -hmm. you could ever have, it's, you look at it and you think, how could people actually live amongst all that? But mm -hmm. 50 years ago, very wealthy people who formed a collection like the Fords and the Reitzman, they all did. That's right. what they, how they want to live. They didn't want anything else but just the very, 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 very best. Mm -hmm. We've moved away from that. The only place that happens, I think, is in, is in pictures. You know, mm -hmm. some people only want the very best. Mm -hmm. But it's so difficult to live in just museum quality. I mean, it, it just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I think I could do it. Well, I think <laughs> <laughs> we'll try. But then you get your first tips, of course, and yeah, exactly. and and then buy it back, then sell it. Yeah. But <laughs> you know, museum tip. quality doesn't have to necessarily mean all of the same vintage. That's what I'm really too. saying. Yeah. It's so much nicer, which Nate is saying. You, you know, if you're given some lovely things to work with, it's just so nice. Or, in fact, even if you have a very large budget, um, by choice, I would never only buy the very best of things. Mm -hmm. I would buy just a few pieces and then fill the rest with what I call the cushioning that makes it comfortable. Mm -hmm. There's something about the mix, I think. I think that, you know, just as we were speaking earlier about the high-low and you, you know, understanding your aunt's eating cat food with a Van Gogh in the corner, you know, I love that. But it, not cat food, tuna. Tuna is cat food. But, but no, it, it's, it's, it, it's, um, there's something about the high-low that I think is so special, and, and you can really only achieve it if something is super, super high. So the challenge then is, what do you pair with that? And, you know, for me and my firm and the way I live personally, I, I, if, if it's made by hand, woven by hand, knitted by hand, thrown by hand, it's fair game. And so, you know, we, we, we're, we're moving, our family's moving back to New York City in a couple of weeks. It's a miracle that I'm sitting here as a Virgo with everything I own in a box. 
Um, <laughs> in fact, I'm just going to go. Um, <laughs> but but the um, you know the, the the thing that I'm most excited about in our new New York residents, the thing that I'm most excited about that I cannot wait to unpack, are these three Vietnamese woven wicker bread baskets that I found at an antique shop here in Long Beach for like $4. I inspected them to make sure that there are no bugs, because that <laughs> also Virgo situation comes yeah, in. Yes. And as they were packing everything of all the things, the paintings, the small objects, the, all the things that you know, make up our life of objects, those are the things that I, I'm like, I'm going to do a dinner at the new house with a perfectly white napkin in this wicker basket, and that's where the bread is going to be served. And I can't believe I didn't have to go to Vietnam to buy them. <laughs> and it's it's it, it so it's that sitting that sitting with Jensen flatware and Nymphenburg porcelain and, right. and 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 Venetian wine a wine glass. I don't think there's anything more interesting than that. And some maybe some napkins from Mexico. Mm -hmm. So it's just that you know that that I think is is the same. Yeah, philosophy yeah. around living with really fine furniture as well. well broadens the definition of a treasure, yeah. too, yeah, which yeah. is nice. Jamie, the most uh, incredible piece of furniture that you've sort of worked into a scheme, or? Um, and was it comfortable? And did the clients sit in it? And did they allow their dogs to sit in it? You know, I, I think just what comes to mind is, and it's not incredibly Oh. Sorry. <laughs> For the standing room only crowd. All right. Thank I'm, you guys I'm not that loud. Um, I, I think what, what comes to mind for me, and it's not something that, uh, at the time when I did it, they were expensive, but the Haas brothers are these Los Angeles sort of makers, these artists, who were making all these things. And years ago, um, I met them, and, and I fell in love with these, like, these molar, these molded, brass uh, sculpted schools. They were these stools that looked like teeth, but they were made of brass and, and uh, but they were beautifully made because they were made of solid hexagonal extrusions of brass and then ground down as a sculpture. Um, anyway, but they were dazzling because they were super, almost fluorescent because they were so high polished. But I did, I did a room in a house in Beverly Hills where everything was muted. Everything was sort of sky blues and grays and, and soft tones and matte finishes. And then I put these two stools in the middle of the room and they were like diamonds. So there, it was like using something collected and sort of handmade and, and prized. They weren't inexpensive. Now they're expensive, but but it, it becomes like jewelry onto this sort of matte surface. So it's more sculptural. And I think that's what's interesting about, hopefully we're inspired by the things that we're finding and then designing a room around that. Because for me, I, th I like to be reactionary. So if you find something that you never dreamed of, you know, like you stumble upon something that, that is magical and there's no maker, but it's like, or maybe a cabinet with all the doors are red and it's a huge rectangular piece then you build a room around something that's unique. And I think that's an opportunity for us to like uh, uh, become something that we never thought we would in a way, because you're, react, you're, you're designing based on something that's magical that you find. I actually bought my first apartment because of really fine furniture. And there was a years ago in, in Chicago, I had no money. 
close to no money, and I found this beautiful apartment that um, on Astor Street that was designed by Samuel Marks in the in the late 30s, um, early 40s, and he um, it was empty. It had been empty. Um, a prominent Chicago family had lived there. It was the most beautiful apartment. One floor, view of the lake, Lake Michigan, incredible elevator open. And I was 25, mm -hmm. 26. And I, um, I felt a little bit like birdcage, like walking around with no shoes on, like what am I doing in this mansion? But it, I, 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 I loved it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, I walked in and I noticed that there was a, a, a bookcase that hadn't been removed from the apartment that ran the length of the living room and also an overmantel mirror that um, was also Marks that had that was being sold with the apartment. And I had no idea how I was going to come up with the down payment to buy this place, but I knew I had to have it. And I ended up calling... you wanted the overmantel. Mirror. What's that? You wanted the overmantel. No, mirror. I didn't. I wanted the apartment you more than the, I wanted the mirror. <laughs> now I want the mirror. <laughs> but, um, but I actually, I called Liz O'Brien in New York who wrote the book about Samuel Marks. And she answered the phone. She was in the shop that day. And her shop. And um, I said... I'm standing in this apartment and there's two really incredibly fine things. And she said, you're in the block apartment in Chicago and the, you're talking about the bookcase and the overman. I said, how much is it worth? Can you take it to the Winter Antique Show? What do I do? And she said, I'll guarantee you this. And I think we can do better, but we'll sell both pieces. And I turned around and made an offer on the apartment. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's, you know, people think that it doesn't matter. The furniture isn't necessarily, you know, it's secondary. And sometimes, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's... It's the ticket to get you living the life that you really want. Okay. You're 25. 26. <laughs> 26. Well, I think he's a very blessed guy, very lucky guy. But that's, um, that's amazing. <laughs> but it's also your success is based on a certain amount of leap of faith and courageousness. You know, you don't do that that young without, like, being, but also being super savvy. And no, that's I'm, what I'm, it's I'm sort of, Thanks. No, but that's what, <laughs> super, because that's what, but that, but it's maybe a side, but it's interesting because you all, uh, the, the thing about these two is that they're smart. And, and no, but it's true. You're both very smart people and, 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 and you, uh, it's, it, it's, you spend your life crafting what you're doing. You know, which is a tremendous amount of time. It's that like 10,000 hour rule. And I think they get to play in this arena because of that complete dedication to, to your craft. And that's what it is. And it's, it's a sacrifice. You spend so much time sort of, but you love it. You're obsessed. You know, you that's what Jamie, I think uh, very nice things to say. But of course, it, like everybody here, all of us, we're all given opportunities at certain moments. And like you have as well, we are talking earlier about your career. And we're all given opportunities and we grab them. When you grab them, you know, God favors the brave, I think is the expression. You, know, you just go ahead and do it. Even, and when you're younger, you do more mad things. Mm -hmm. But interesting just about this conversation is, which I think both Jamie and Nate have said, which I think is the real truth, is that in decoration and the world we're all living in, if you're lucky enough to have a few good pieces of furniture, it's so nice then to high-low 
And I think the world is so normal in so many respects because the secretness of, um, of what we all do is now being exposed all the time with Instagram and everything. Nothing is sacred. Mm -hmm. So if nothing is sacred, um, things are quite normal. And it's the high-low which gives attention. And all beauty comes out of tension. Mm -hmm. you know? And so I think even in harmony. So I think that's, in my opinion, what um, is leading this, this conversation. That's great. Um, I, I just want to say, have you ever actually met an interior designer, a successful interior designer that wasn't smart? Because honestly, what you guys do, you know, not only do you have to know the history of decorative arts and you have to know color and all that, I mean, I guess some of it's instinctual, but you also have to understand uh, uh, how to run a business and you also have to know how to run people or manage people. And I'm talking about clients in this case, you know, that's the psychology involved in that. I think you guys are. Amazing we all love to sit around, all of us together, and just see how many qualities we're meant to have to be good at what we do. <laughs> do you know all these things we're meant to be good at, you know, as well as, you know, having a life? Hey. I want to do one and then maybe a question or two, but I want to just do like a lightning round of, can you name a, a room that's either uh, open to the public or not, a historic room, one that exists now, that just was filled with such beautiful treasures that you wish. I think of um, Yves Saint Laurent and Pierre Berger's apartment in Paris as a, you know, a, a space that is probably once in, in a generation. Um, are there spaces that you've um, encountered? I, I would say, I was trained as an architect, but I, I had the ability to see amazing sort of architecture sort of in different parts of the world, but Sir John Soane's museum in London mm -hmm. is perhaps the most stunning example of, of, a, of a collector, a mad collector, that it, it, it took over his entire life. And so he built these sort of townhomes side by side, filled with inventions to hold his collections. He would have panels. He would have so many paintings. He would have the panel system, so the room... The room was paneled to fit enough paintings, so they they were back to back, and then sarcophagi and like that. That's to me the most fantastical sort of collection because it's madcap and everything's a treasure. But it also feels like a home, is a weird home. Yeah. But uh, you, yeah. I could imagine living yeah, there, yeah. and you kind of want to live there. Oh my so. god, it was like yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Chateau de Grousset uh, in um, outside of Paris, I think is really cool. Um, just. The use of color I thought was interesting, and I think that there was so much attention paid to the, the follies in the garden, which is what it's known for. Um, and the Comtesse de Noailles, um, the white slip-covered Jean-Michel Frank room with incredibly beautiful directoire and, and period furniture and decoration, I think is really, it was such a bold move at the time to have cotton slip-covers and rectilinear furniture with all these fine French furniture that um, it's that always will resonate for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think you know what Jamie said. I think so, the same museum is the iconic thing in my life too. But I think you know everything that's beautiful in a collection. The architecture is so important to go with it. It's not just one thing. And with Saint Laurent and Pierre Bourget's collection in Paris, the architecture was great to begin with. They had very, a lot of money at a period of time when everything was available and it was just a shopping list. So mm -hmm. throw it all together with great taste. It looks mm -hmm. amazing. Mm -hmm. But um, I think um, f for me too, um, the great one of the great rooms was Henri Samuel's flat in, in Paris, which um, 
was representative of the 60s in its purest form. It was pumpkin, pumpkin-colored walls, and um, it had unbelievable paintings and contemporary furniture at the time, which was 60s, which now, of course, we all want again. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of lucite furniture and things, and that, to me, with comfort and, and comfortable sofas and things, and leading on to a garden, because mm-hmm. anything great if it has a garden with it, mm-hmm. I'm in heaven. <laughs> you, know, you need the garden. <laughs> so nice garden, too. I think we have about a minute and a half, if you have a question. Um, okay. Did you all hear in the back? Should I repeat? Uh, what's the biggest risk they've taken? Um, they've taken in a design project, you know, and did it work or did it not work? Uh, sort of playing off Jamie's original comment about. This. Uh, I mean, there's so many stressful things. Like you, you still have those clients, Jamie? Um, well, <laughs> we. I mean. I hope they're not here I, right now. <laughs> well, I wish they were. See how wonderful it was. I mean, there's so many things like you try, but like we, we made a table for a project that was uh, carved out of one piece of marble, but to a thin edge, and we had to deliver it in in a in a house we were doing. But but then when we figured it out, we had to build a, a an engineered crate to to create it on its side and it got so huge that we needed enough, an enormous crane to bring it to the house, but the driveway wasn't cured. So that we had to sign a waiver that the crane wouldn't tip and go into the top of the house <laughs> and drop it and crush it. And we had to sign a waiver that they're absolving responsibility and we were under this deadline and we had to do it. We like, it was, I mean, it could have been a disaster because it, there's a chance it could have crashed. And then, we, because we had to crane it over the table, and then we had to glue it to the floor <laughs> because it was such a thin edge at the end. If somebody stood on it, the, it, it could topple and crash. So we had to like crane it into the house, and then with doll- like uh, these engineering feats, you know? And you do things like this, and you're like, oh, you know, uh, you might just. You lose your business, or who knows what. <laughs> but like, I, and it's—I don't know—it's not always smart. But I think I like—I do things like that sometimes that are like, um, because you—you have—it's the right table, you know. What was it I was just saying about designers being smart? <laughs> A risk beer that you've taken. Well, I think actually for the young lady, I think look. Our job, if we're good at what we do, we have to be brave. You take risks every day, but our job is to make it work. So even when I'm faced with this Richter, I made it work, and I was more proud of that than anything because when I walked in that ro- when I walked into that room now, I think I could happily live in this room. When I saw the painting, I couldn't. And every one of us take risks. We have to take risks to be good at what we do, to push ourselves, become more edgy, to progress, to go take people out of the norm. We have to be brave, and it'll always work. You'll make it work. There's never more than, there's always another solution. There's always, there's not one correct way to do a a room. And I learned that through my marriage. Um, But (laughs) the, it's been great. Um, But but I will say that, um, you know, as as a designer, when we're installing, we always leave ourselves an out. And we sell things room by room. That's how we present to clients. We sell them space by space. But we also have a caveat that I make everyone on my staff repeat over and over. This is where we think these things will go, but we might change our minds on, as we're installing. So don't be married to this pair of chairs in the window and don't be married to this cabinet or chest of drawers 
in the foyer because if we decide when we're there that we don't like it there, we're going to move it, and you'll see the home in, 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 at, with our very best foot forward, and nothing ever lands where we thought it was going to. Nothing. 25 years of business, and I, it's, you know, it's just nothing. It's shocking. It's, it's never what you think. They no. can't believe it either. No. But you know, You've got your chest of drawers. It looks better there than it did. Yeah, here. and you know when you're standing there, it's like just get everybody. You know, pick it up, pick it up. <laughs> let's go. The movers are gone. Pick it up. Carry it up and down the stairs and figure it out because we, you know, we won't leave something until at least to our eye it looks great. And then the layers come in, obviously after that, after we're we're gone. Um, but yeah, it's never it never works out as you thought. Furniture thought. really has to breathe, and so often volume and the way it breathes and the and the proportion. When you have very high ceilings, almost anything will be can be crammed in. But if you've got normal normal proportions, anyway, it always does. We make it. That's our job. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> a job. <laughs> the installation. Um, is it a quick one? It is a quick okay. one. I hope. Okay. Um, so dealing with young, newly. Young and rich. I think they're. I think they're exhausting. <laughs> the, like, the, because people that come into quick money sometimes like are like I, I feel we had this twenty-five-year-old billionaire that we did a project for, and he was like a child. We had a clean. We had a clean up. <laughs> he is a child. No, twenty-five. He, he was a child, and 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 he, we had to go over there, and there'd be like pizza boxes everywhere and like <laughs> and, and like underwear and the furniture and we're just like like just take the check Jamie I know but he was like insane we had a tea I felt like his his parents were there and like eat the pizza and take the do check do anything it was like it was like and and I don't know like I think with wealth becomes responsibility and there should be like a sign off somebody giving permission that they're like an adult to be like that they're not just crazy, but like they are our clients, like that we're in business because of this, but sometimes. Well, <laughs> well on, on that note, um, <laughs> I'm going to dismiss you all to go. There's lots of programming ahead. This was amazing. Uh, thank you, the three legends. This was another legendary conversation from the La Cienega Design Quarters Legends 2019 event. Thank you for listening to this episode of Convo by Design's Legendary Conversations. If not already, please subscribe to the show anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. You can also check out videos from some of your favorite conversations on our YouTube channel, as well as the Convo by Design Instagram feed. Search Convo by Design, this time with an X. Special thanks to the amazing LCDQ showroom managers and owners. And of course, thank you, because without you listening, there is no Convo by Design. Until next week, keep creating. Music.